morning to you and I uh, hope everybody's doing well. Hope all your moms and dads out there are doing well, grandma and grandpa. If you have them in your life and they are here on this planet, please go see them, call them, hug them, give them a kiss on the cheek, love them up big time because time is precious, folks. Please remember that. So Murph, you know, looking at, and we talk about how time is precious, the wild card series are so fast, right? It was Tuesday, Wednesday, see you later. That's all it was. I mean, it could have been Thursday if it needed to be, but nobody needed a Thursday. The Rangers come out here. They're the five seed. They face off against the Rays, the four seed. The Rays won just shy of 100 games, and people were going ignorantly. (laughs) The people were saying some pretty ridiculous things about you know when it comes to the Rays and the Rays winning that series the Rays almost were at the top of the entire American League East without Wander Franco and people forget that very quickly thoughts on how the Rays fell out of this thing I believe they scored one run in two games something like that and here here's what I have to say about that shame on the fans for not showing up 18,000 people at a playoff game? Mm. That's, no. They talk about Oakland, they talk about the Oakland A's moving. That series, the lack of fans in the stadium for that series made me think that seriously, Tampa Bay does not deserve a baseball team. That franchise, rather than getting a new stadium, they need to move. They need to move to a city that actually wants them. Because Tampa Bay clearly does not want a baseball team. They do not deserve a baseball team. So after that series, if I'm the Rays owner, I'm getting the hell out of there. I'm canceling that stadium project, and I'm going somewhere else. Go to you know, Salt Lake City or go to, I don't know, back to Montreal or anywhere. Nashville, Charlotte. Wherever, someone's going to want a baseball team. Clearly, Tampa Bay does not want a baseball team. Well, you know, and it's it's just, it's sad. It's very sad. And I remember when I was down there and they were the first team to clinch a playoff spot, first team in the entire country the year that I was down there. And so, you know, there was this conversation of, you know, okay, so now that they've made it, now that they've clinched, like who's going to show up, who's going to have fun, who's going to enjoy the games. They had free tickets online that they were selling people, literally free tickets. They had, you could go online to the Rays website, click on this one button, and it and it gave you a picture of your ticket that you can scan. You printed it off, you brought it in. It was like 12,000 free tickets. Once they made the playoffs and they had a few more home games to go, they could not hand people free tickets enough and nobody can. And I just remember thinking back on that. And my guy, Dukes Knutson, who's going to be on the show tomorrow. And I love Dukes. Dukes is my dude. He's the press box manager for the Rays. He loves the Rays. I mean, he, he eats, sleeps and breathes the Rays every single day. And, you know, I just I don't even know what to say to him to see something like that. You know, it's it's frustrating. It's aggravating. The fact that they want to spend millions and millions of dollars to build a new stadium. It's like, come out to the game, guys. You know what I mean? Like it's Syracuse has a really nice stadium for the Syracuse Mets. And that's a triple A team. And I drove by it yesterday. 
And I'm sitting there looking at it going like, wow, that's like literally right in my backyard. And it's AAA. And I love that it's in my backyard. It's not even Major League Baseball. It's AAA. It's one step below on the way up there. But I get excited when I drive by and I'm like, man, it's right there. Like if I want to go, I can like walk right in there. It's eight bucks maybe for fans that want to come out and see the game. And and, it, and it's honestly almost more fun than going to a major league game. Food's cheaper. <clears throat> Getting into the stadium is cheaper. Parking is cheaper. The product on the field, you got a bunch of guys that are trying to get to the major league. So they're all trying to you know do their best to get there. Yeah. Not that the product itself is better, but these guys are you know, giving it everything they got. Yeah. I love going to AAA games. I mean, we got the Strength Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders and the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs within, you know, within 45 minutes of where I live. So, you know, for me, it's easy. Where the Iron Pigs are, I can walk there from work. Yeah. From where I work on Airport Road. So, you know, I've gone to Iron Pigs games after work sometimes, and, you know, it's like you pay six bucks for a lawn seat, five bucks to park. It's... Four bucks for a beer, and it's a couple bucks for food. Yeah. You know, you're going to a baseball game for 25 bucks. Yeah. By the way, one of the most inexpensive tickets, or one of the most inexpensive teams to go and see in Major League Baseball going into, I think it was like last season we looked at this, it was for a family of four, and it included hot dogs, drinks, and tickets to the game. And it was under two hundred dollars for a family of four to go to a Diamondbacks game, and 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 conversely, conversely, Murph, it was how much was it for the Yankees? No, they well the Mets were high. The Mets were high. I think the I'm most sure the Yankees are probably the highest. Yeah, the most well the most expensive beer was I believe the Washington Nationals. I think their beer was like oh come on no. thirteen dollars. That's not true. It was a couple. I got, of, a tall, I got two tall boys at Nationals Park for five bucks a piece. There's well, no, there's no way that's true. Well, this was a couple of years ago. Maybe, maybe they decided to make things a little so bit was this. more. This was, a couple of years. this was 2019, maybe something like that. Two tall boys. They're five bucks a piece. I'm looking at it right now. Okay, which ballpark is the most expensive fan experience? Okay, so Fenway Park, as of right now, 2023, Fenway Park, $385.37 for, that is a fan experience. Fenway Park is the most expensive fan experience as of right now. Then Wrigley Field, then Wrigley Field for the Chicago Cubs, then Minute Maid Park for the Houston Astros, then Yankee Stadium for the New York Yankees, then the Dodger Stadium for Los Angeles Dodgers. But here's the thing, like these numbers are so close. Those top five are all over three hundred dollars. So, and so when we look at it, right. uh, nosebleed seats, parking, couple hot dogs. Yeah, I want to see how they break it down dogs. here. So it says, da, 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 okay, somewhere in a style. Okay, what is the old, the oldest ballpark? No, that's that one to look for. And I can understand Fenway and Wrigley being up there because they're older. There's not a lot of seats in those stadiums. Yeah. You no. Know, I so it was called the yeah it was called the fan cost index FCI. So if you look this up, folks, the fan cost index. You can do it with us this morning. Let's play the home game. And so if you do that, uh, it, the cheapest ballpark experience of any team from 2022 coming into this. So 
uh, reflects how much it would cost to take a family of four to a Major League Baseball game, taking tickets, parking, and concessions into consideration. The Diamondbacks' $152.30 FCI is more than $30 cheaper than any other team and over $100 less than the Major League Baseball average. So you can go to a Diamondbacks game for about $150 for a family of four, baby. Let's get it. Chase Field in Arizona. That's the cheapest. Then it's the Miami Marlins, uh, Ion Depot. Or Lone Depot, pardon me. It's spelled different on here. Lone. They, they keep changing the freaking names of these yeah. stadiums. 186 and 6. Yeah, because it used to be. Yeah, it's Marlins Park. Yeah. And then Tropicana. Just like, just like the, the Steelers Stadium. I'm, I'm watching the Steelers Ravens game yesterday, which was a very good game, by the way. Very entertaining. Um, if the Ravens could catch the ball. Well, yeah. But it's Heinz Field. Right. Now it's. I don't even know what the name of the stadium is. It's, it, it, it is Heinz Field. It is and always will be Heinz Field. It starts so with like, an A. It's like a shore, Accusure, Accusure Park or something. It. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's just stupid. Absolutely yeah. stupid. So I'm gonna tell you that I'm gonna tell you the cheapest ballparks for a family of four. So the Diamondbacks win the race here on this one. Then it's the Marlins, $186.06 for a family of four, which includes parking, tickets, and concessions. Tropicana Field for the Tampa Bay Rays, third cheapest in the league, $192.02. PNC Park for the Pittsburgh Pirates, $199.23. And then Oriole Park at Camden Yards for the Baltimore Orioles at $203.06. And then the most expensive fan experience, like I told you, it's the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Astros, the Yankees, and the Dodgers. All of them are over $300. The Dodgers, which are the fifth most expensive for a family of four, is $326.91. And the Red Sox are just shy of $400 for four. So basically $100 per person for a family of four. Yeah. Which is nuts. So I was counting on my hands how many of these teams were in the playoffs. Yeah. I got... Four out of the five on the low end, yeah. and only two out of the five on the high end. Yeah, and it's the same thing when you look at well, and this is this is the funny thing too. So when you talk about how much money teams spend, right? A lot of these teams that have the most expensive fan experience have also the some of the highest salaries because, as Murph and I have talked about before. It always goes back to the consumer. Unfortunately, they're like, hey, we got you guys a great team. It's just going to cost you 20 more dollars for a hot dog. And so seeing this, it's not surprising that some of the most expensive fan experiences also happen to be from some of the most expensive salaried teams that are out there. So it does coincide pretty well and line itself up. And I just want to shout out my Diamondbacks for giving you a really nice fan experience and uh, not being too expensive. And the Tampa Bay Rays, unsurprising, right? Because they have one of the cheapest. Because they don't have any money. It's also, I mean, they're one of they're one of the cheapest ones, and so are the Orioles. But you look at it, Tampa Bay and Baltimore, who have two of the bottom. I think it's they're in the bottom three or bottom four cheapest salaries out there have the cheap fan experiences. The cheapest salary that is out there that did not have a cheap fan experience written here, probably because of the incredible parking and the ballooning of all types of stuff out in California, are the Oakland A's. 
that's not all that surprising. And you know, Oakland Oakland fans I think still deserve a stadium because realistically they have at least had they filled the stadium for playoff games. Yeah. They still want like they're pissed that their team's moving to Vegas. If anybody should be moving to Vegas, it's the race. To be perfectly honest. Because nobody likes them. Nobody watches them. Nobody goes to their games. They got swept out of the playoffs, and it probably felt like there were more Rangers fans there than there were Rays fans. That's sad. Really, really sad. Well, and this- so if I'm if I'm the if I'm the owner of the Rays, I'm getting the hell out of there now. I'm going to wherever I can go: Nashville, my um. Nashville, maybe Jacksonville, maybe go to Montreal, maybe go to Charlotte, or, I don't know, somewhere in maybe upstate New York, whatever. Just get the hell out of Tampa. I'll take the raise up here. But, I mean, yeah, I, that that's but that's the thing that's frustrating, right? And, and we talk about Charlotte. Now, Charlotte's got the Hornets, and... Charlotte just got the, you know, the one of the newest franchises in Major League Baseball with, or pardon me, with Major League Soccer with Charlotte FC. But here's the thing, Murph. It's Charlotte was a place where they had the Hornets and they didn't appreciate that they had the Hornets and they weren't showing up to the games. And then the Hornets left and, and then people immediately were like, what are you doing? I wanted to go to the game. I was going to go to the next one, right? When you talk to those people that are like, well, where were you? Yeah, hey man, you want to hang out? Now nah, I'll catch you next time. And then next time comes around, they're like, "Oh man, I'm gonna catch you next time. I'm gonna get you next time. I gotta get you next time, dude. I'm, you know what? I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna show up to the next event. I'm gonna show up the next time something comes up. I'm always gonna be there the next time. Oh, dude, I was gonna go there, and then they closed the next day. They've been open for 35 years, but I was definitely gonna go the exact next day, and it just wasn't there. Oh man, my luck. No, it's not. And so Charlotte fans were doing that, right? Oh, we were going to go to the Hornets game the next day. We were going to go. And they took him away. And then within a year, they gave him the Bobcats. And then that created this really weird world that the Charlotte Hornets went down to New Orleans. Then they went to Oklahoma City during the Hurricane Katrina time. Then they went back to New Orleans and then they became the Pelicans but the New Orleans Pelicans are still the old Charlotte Hornets franchise lineage. And then the Charlotte Bobcats went out of existence and the Charlotte Hornets came back. But it's a new Hornets team to confuse everybody. And Charlotte is now this fast growing city and people show up for the Charlotte FC games. And I think they had like 50,000, 60,000 people at the first game at Bank of America Stadium where the Carolina Panthers play. So probably more fans than the Panthers have right now. And so all this stuff was going on. And but it came from them having to lose. They had to lose their franchise. I don't want that to happen to Tampa, but I'm really frustrated and upset with fans down in Florida that you have this awesome team who makes the playoffs every year, who has incredible players, who has good pitching, who has a strong front office and a unique experience, and they just don't and one of the cheapest fan experiences in the entire nation and they just don't show up and and it's the other idea frustrates instead me. of keeping the stadium in st pete why not, why not actually put it into tampa because apparently from what people have told me st pete's not easy to get to 
The thing about, okay, here's the thing about St. Pete. It's, there's a bridge. So when you're driving on the highway, mm-hmm. there's a long bridge. I, I vaguely remember from when I went com- to a couple yeah. race games. Yeah, there's a vague bridge coming into Tampa. Then there's another bridge after that bridge. And both of these bridges are over water. So you take these long bridges to get all the way into St. Pete. The other part of it, though, is that the highway itself, yeah, it gets congested, but it's got four or five lanes. Like I've driven on this highway many, many times, a a few, a couple months ago. And when I was at Ray's Dodgers, these fans probably have outside of those long bridges and I get it, they're over water. What if they're backed up? It's scary. What it's not. I mean, obviously, a lot of stuff is over water in Florida. So if you're living down there, you probably get used to it, I would imagine. But the reality is that people make excuses. OK, people do what they want to do. This is in relationships. This is in business. This is in fan fans going to games. People do what they want to do. If somebody makes an excuse to not do something, the real reason is that they don't want to do it. They don't want to go. So the fans don't want to go. So they don't go. And that's the reality of it. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but the fans that sit here and say, ah, well, you know, there's two bridges. So let's say they created some other way to get there. Let's say they just figured out another way to get there. The, that no fan temptation. that fan would still not show up. Probably not. You're right. You know what I mean? Which it's like why I don't think that city deserves a team. Because But that's the thing that frustrates me, is the people that have the biggest mouth, that complain the most, that have the biggest issues with everything, those idiots never go to the games. They never show up to the games. They never go. They don't show up to the games. They don't show up to other events. The people that complain the most and are the biggest pain in the butt. I remember one year I had a fantasy football league and a guy that was like, hey, can you change the schedule? I can't do Sunday. I can do Saturday. Can you move me in the league? So I moved him in the league and he goes, ah, man, I can't I can't do Saturday. I can do Sunday. Can you move me back? And then he goes, oh, I, I, you know, I don't even know why I was looking at this. I actually have to do Saturday. Can you move me back to Saturday from Sunday? And can you change the time from four to noon? I changed three or four times for this guy and another guy. What happened on that Saturday, draft. bro? Yeah, the draft day. Guess what happened that day? Neither one of those guys showed up, and I don't even think they said anything. So when – you know what I mean? So it's like you, you look at you look at things like that of what fans are complaining about. It's one of the cheapest experiences for a family of four. It's it's This is the thing. Do you need a lot of reasons? No, but I'll give you two main reasons. It's one of the most inexpensive things to do with your family of four. That's number one. And they go to the playoffs. So inexpensive playoff caliber team. Most people, most people don't even have that Murph. Most, most people don't have one of those two. They don't have a cheap fan experience, nor do they have a playoff team every single year. You got a you, you got a playoff team that you can watch for peanuts on the dollar. I don't know what these, when it comes to major league baseball prices, I don't know what these people are complaining about that don't go to these games unless they just don't like baseball. Oh, well. Although we've, we've spent a lot of time on that, I think. Because... I think the rest of the Wild Card <laughs> series is a little more important. But, you know what I mean? But it's But the truth of the matter is, appreciate what you have before you lose it. You know, it's the, we only know what you got till it's gone. It's 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 a true statement, but it's such a BS statement for the people that actually live life that way. So, let's move on to the next thing here. So the Twins 
coming from the worst division in baseball, the American League Central. Nobody had a winning record in that division except for the Twins. But when I picked the Blue Jays, apparently the sky fell for some people out there that lost their minds over the fact that how could anybody not pick the Twins? Well, there's a lot of people that didn't pick the Twins. the Twins suck. <laughs> so, but the Twins win. The Blue Jays, like the I Rays. the Blue Jays, too. And that's the thing, though, Murph. The Blue Jays, just like the Rays, scored one run in two games. They're, they're... Credit, credit Minnesota's pitching staff for that one. Yeah. Um, Crazy, though. Sonny Gray and Pablo Lopez were dominant in those two out, in those two games. So the fact that they were able to get those two great, those great starts from those two guys and then their bullpen was well-rested, that was it. You knew, and it, this is the same thing I said about Milwaukee. Now, Milwaukee lost one of their big horses. They lost Brandon Woodruff. But if Milwaukee gets just decent starts from those two guys, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, yeah. they're winning that series easily. Easily. So with, with the Twins, it was the same thing. They got two great outings from their two best pitchers, two of the better pitchers in the American League, and they swept the, and they swept the Blue Jays. We knew it could happen. I I said it right. I believe I said it right here. The, you know, if the Twins win, it wouldn't shock me because of the pitching staff. Their rotation is really good. Right. So, you know, yeah, their lineup's not that good, and Royce Lewis kind of carried them through that series. But their their pitching staff was good enough. Good pitching wins in the playoffs. Yeah. Good pitching always beats good hitting in the playoffs. Always, always, always. The one exception to that. Is the year the Mets lost the World Series, but that's you know we need to hear nor there. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I don't want to say I was surprised by that series because I wasn't, but you know caught off guard a little bit maybe. Yeah. But I figured that the Blue Jays' offense was too good. Turns out, Twins pitching was just better. That's all it was. Yeah, you know I mean, and that's and that's the thing. I mean, the Twins did what they needed to do. They came back. They, they 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 came out in that series pitching and defense. And but when you look at the teams that won, and you give credit to the teams that won, you look at pitching and defense, right? You look right. at you look at what they did. They don't get the credit for it, but the Diamondbacks defense. If y'all didn't believe in it, you saw it now. You saw it in the wild card. You've seen it in Game One of the NLDS. The defense is alive and well. So they kind of slugged their way there, though. Yeah, but I mean, you look at. I mean, let's be honest. They kind of slugged their way there. But look, but look at how they play, though. Look at look at what they do. I mean, Evan Longoria, for all the years that he's been in the league, look at the play that he made. You got bases loaded, bases loaded for this team, and when they were going up against the, uh, what was it base? It was bases loaded for the Brewers, and. He is in between third and second, catches the ball out of midair, and ends the inning when you were going to give up at least one, if not two, runs on that play. And so you have experience. You have you have plays like that. There's so many plays that they made, so many opportunities that they took away. How many times they left the Dodgers in Game One of the NLDS stranded? You know, pitching and defense for the Diamondbacks. Pitching and defense, the Phillies gutting things out. This is how, you know, people talk about, all oh, the bats, the bats, the bats. Yeah, Arizona definitely had bats. 
They definitely had bats, okay? And that first NLDS game, six to nothing in the top of the first inning of game oh, one. Kershaw didn't even make it out of the first inning. No, and that was one of the greatest things is not only did they get up six to nothing for Diamondbacks fans, they got up six zero and you got Clayton Kershaw out of the game. You you retired Clayton Kershaw in the first inning with no outs in the entire game. One, that man didn't one. even last a single. Did he have one out? He got one out. Got okay. One out. I thought it was when it was none. So if it's a third of an inning, six runs, six hits, I think it was. Yeah. So, I mean, you look, you look back to Clayton Kershaw, you got the ace of the Dodgers out of the game. And what did they talk about? He's so good against the Diamondbacks. Oh my gosh, this guy on the mound, he's crazy against the Diamondbacks. He's got yes, a great record against the Diamondbacks. Don't forget playoff Clayton Kershaw is not the same as regular season Clayton Kershaw. Forget. Yeah, you know, and and I I think I think the thing, Murph, you know, when we look at when we look at this, I, I think for me, watching this and seeing the way that the Diamondbacks have played defensively, offensively, you know, Moreno, Marte, Carroll. Fam woke up in the NLDS as he was more quiet in the last game against the Brewers. I mean, the these guys, Walker, it's just they're doing something, right? They're doing something. The Phillies, again, with the Braves, they got something to prove. There's something to be said about the chip on the shoulder type of situation and scenario. When you have a chip on your shoulder and you are in that place, you know, to me, it's it's a great opportunity for your team to excel when you have that nobody thinks we're going to win except for us. We got our fan ba- our true fan base behind us. We got the people that love us behind us. And to everybody else, we're just going to play this dang game and we're going to see what happens. But, you know, people think Dodgers, people think Braves, people think Orioles. And look at what's happening. Look at how things are shaking out. Look at how teams are playing. Look at how close the Twins are contesting the Astros in these games and pushing the Astros in these games. Nobody is yeah, safe. Tied up the series yesterday. Right. Nobody's safe. No. Nope. That's playoff baseball. But that's what that's I love. Playoff baseball. That's why it's the greatest time of the year. I love it. It's hectic. It is entertaining. And it also it breaks hearts. That's the that's the cool thing about it. So, you know, the Twins tied up the series, and now the Orioles got their backs against the wall, man. Yeah, the Orioles are down two nothing. When you're down two nothing in a best of five series, especially now that you got to go back to Texas for two of those games. Yeah, they're not gonna make it. They're not gonna make it back to Baltimore. Well, and that's a Baltimore, but and the one thing that we thought was going to kill them in the playoffs is killing them in the playoffs. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. The thing with Baltimore is, again, you want to see them win because this is a team Absolutely. that typically starts a season off strong and then ends the season five of five in the a in the American League East. They're the always the the bottom. They're the fifth team of five <laughs> five spots well, their in the American. Finally done. Right. They're but, finally out of the rebuild and they're ready to contend. But you look at they that. Probably are here. They're probably a year or two ahead of schedule right now. Right. That team, that offense is loaded. 
problem is they need pitching. Grayson Rodriguez is great, but he was iffy all year. Had some ups, had some downs, even got sent back down to AAA at one point. They need starting pitchers. In the play in in the playoffs, that's this is their this is their downfall. They do not have the pitching capable to go to the World Series. And well, I said that at the deadline. I'm like, listen, this team needs to go get pitchers. And they didn't. Well So yeah. I thought one of them would have been a great destination for Verlander or Scherzer, but guess not. But ultimately for them, go get an Aaron Nola in the playoffs or in the in the offseason. Go get a Marcus Stroman. Someone like that that can carry your pitching staff and make you that much better. Because that lineup's not changing anytime soon. No. But I'm a, I'm going off of the assumption that they're probably not making it past this series. And Texas will go to the ALCS. Yeah, you know, and, and this is but again, you know, this is a this is a team who makes it to a certain point, right? They get here. And they're not the team that's that's used to being in the playoffs. And for some teams, that's okay. For some teams like Arizona, that doesn't that's not phasing them. For other teams like Baltimore, it you know it's, Arizona's got nothing to lose. Right. But the, they weren't expected to be there. So right. They're just having fun. But you also look at experience versus non experience, right? The Rangers experience, the Rays who are now gone experience. The Phillies experience, the Braves experience, the Dodgers experience. So you bring in a Diamondbacks team who hasn't been there in six years. You bring in an Orioles team that's used to starting off hot and then fizzling out and being one of the worst teams in baseball by the end of the season. And then, you know, you look at you look at those two scenarios. The Orioles are not responding well to it. The Diamondbacks have responded well to it. But the thing that I also love is that, and, and here's the difference, the Rangers coming from the West are playing the Orioles in the East, and the Twins coming from the Central are playing the Astros from the West. West. And, and then on the other side of it, when you look at the Phillies, Braves, Diamondbacks, Dodgers, these are divisional series. This is another crack at the team that prevented you from winning the division. The Phillies were double-digit games behind the Braves. The Diamondbacks were double-digit games behind the Dodgers. You come into this feeling like, okay, like you said, we got a chip on our shoulder. Nobody thinks we're going to win this thing. The Dodgers commanded this. We had the lead of the division. They took it. They kept it. You know, the Braves start off. They do what they do. The Phillies are there. They're trying to fight with it. The Braves run away with it, and they hold on to it for, for you know, a good portion of the season. So now – you have these divisional series, and some people are against this, saying you should not be able to play your own division in the divisional series, which I think is ironic and funny because the series is called the divisional here's, series. Yeah. Here's, here's, my, here's my issue. Here's what I have to say to those people. Shut up. These people probably don't even watch baseball. Yeah. Like, come on. My, my, if you ask me, I actually think it's more fun that way. Because you know who you're facing. Right. We're probably going to see that in the ALCS. It's probably going to happen. Look at all the Yankees-Red Sox series we saw in the playoffs. Look at all the, you know, Mets-Braves, Dodgers-Giants, Twins-Indians. Sorry, Guardians. They'll, They'll never be the freaking Guardians as long as I live. They'll always be the Indians for me. 
Um, well, your brain has like to like the, correct itself just when like I the, just like the commanders of the Redskins. Yeah. You have and to. You know, there's a petition to bring the name of the Redskins back, right? Well, the thing I think is crazy. Well, and and yeah, I mean, because the thing is, fans probably want to stay that because that's what that's what they've identified as. Yeah. But when you look at this and you see the Redskins, I just picked up a card from 2021 when I did a pack break. And it says Washington football team. And I was like, ooh, this is a collector's item now because they're not the football team anymore. And then my Redskins cards are not the Redskins anymore. My Joe Theismann cards. So now they're the commanders. And But it's hard because your brain has to, like, shift to what that is. Was it two years they played under that name? The Washington football team? Two years. It was two. It was two. How are you going to make a name change like that? And not and not know what you're gonna call your team. Like, come on. Because that's ridiculous. Because what they did was under pressure, they said, Okay, whatever, you can have whatever you want. And then they said, What's the plan? And they didn't have one. And that that's that's because the Because they should have never changed the name of the team. That's the problem with it. it when was you, it had nothing to do with Native Americans. It had everything to do with the old white women who thought it's offensive, it's offensive. Like, shut the hell up, lady. Clearly, the ones that should be offended are not. Well, and the thing... The same people that call things racist or say that a voter ID is racist because black people can't get an ID. Like, that is the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. And it's the it's the people that are not in that group that want them to change the name or want them to do these things. And I'm sorry to get, you know, all political, but this is, you know, I, I feel like I need to, you know, air this out real quick because... It's not the people that would be affected by it that are saying things. It's the old white women or the crazy white man or whoever that it has absolutely nothing to do with that gets offended by it. Well, and I I think, you know, when you look at Native American tribes, right, the Florida State Seminoles have a relationship with the Seminole tribe and they involve them in the festivities. They involve them in the entire opening of the game. They bring them into the press box. And so, you know, I think when you go back to the Washington Redskins, you have to ask the question to the actual tribe. What are your thoughts? Because in New York state right now, they're looking at, they, they said in New York in New York state, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, but if you have any name, that can be associated in any way, shape, or form with Native Americans as your team name in your high school. You have to delete the name and your logo and recreate something. Liverpool is called the Liverpool Warriors. They were told they might have to change their name. Their mascot is a Spartan and has nothing to do with Native Americans. They're called the Warriors, but because they're called the Warriors, New York State said that might be an offensive name. So I would tell New York State to do something and stick it where the sun don't shine. But that's exactly what I would tell them get the hell out of here. We're not changing the name. So that's so this whole petition thing, when we discuss it Spartans are Greek. Right. What, so, <laughs> I don't get that I don't get a Spartan is literally Greek. But it's it's the thought of like, well, it's the warrior. And, you know, Syracuse was the saltine warrior. And what does this mean? And what could it mean to the community? And is it a fa- Basically, if it's offensive. Military to- warriors. Right. 
basically, if it's offensive to one person, it has to go. And the Roman Empire soldiers were warriors. But the, the, Greek, the, the last stand of the 300 in Greece were warriors. <laughs> like, come on. It's got nothing to do with Native Americans. But, well, in, in this case, it does not. And, and here's the thing. This is the thing that frustrates me more than more than many things is what we're talking about today. And that is the fact that people are spending taxpayer money and time on telling high schools to change their non-offensive names because they think they could be offensive because somebody complained one time when they were eating lunch in a meeting for something at some point that had to do with nothing. So when I think about Probably this, when I think about this stuff, though, and what's offensive, what's not offensive, we live in a country where there's things that are offensive and they need to change immediately. But I can, but I can believe in God and I can be told that I'm not allowed to show that, celebrate that, talk about that, honor that, wear my cross out. I was told at a restaurant I worked at to put my cross away and to not say Merry Christmas. I was at the old radio station I worked at. Corporate didn't like God, conversations about God. So what I would ask people today as we have this difficult conversation is I don't want anybody to ever be offended, but there's also some of you that are offended about everything. And the reason why you're offended about it, the reason why you're offended about everything is because you weren't raised right and you were raised that the world revolved around you and you were raised selfishly. And because you were raised that way, you just want to see people change things and you don't really care because I would venture to say this. And I'm not saying the Redskins name or the commander's name or whatever name is the right one, the wrong one, this, that, whatever. What I will say about the Washington team is of the people that complained, how many of them were Native American? I want to see that. I want to see what tribes were up. I want to see what tribes were upset about it. And to all the people that signed a petition to get rid of the Redskins name, I want to know if you've ever been to a football game. And, uh, and how about the Indians, too? The Cleveland Indians. They've well, been the Indians for 100 years. But the thing, that's, the thing that's hard for me is, and I think it's hard for the franchise, is you've sold, you've sold yourself for so many you know, years. Well, here's the thing. If you go to a Cleveland Guardians game today, right, if you went like this upcoming season and you're wearing Indian stuff, do they tell you at the door that you have to take it off because it's offensive? Or are you allowed to wear your Indians gear to a Cleveland Guardians game? You know, I mean, I, I just, but that's, you know what I mean? If, if I, have the, a, I have a Rick Vaughn jersey for Major League with Chief Wahoo on the side. If anyone tells me that that's offensive, I'm going to tell them to stick it. But the Syracuse Chiefs had to change their name. Now, they had the silhouette. They had the silhouette. They, they became the Mets right. when the Mets bought the team. But, but before all of that. Way before all of that, when I was a kid, they were the Syracuse Chiefs, and they had a side profile that was white or Carolina blue. And it was a side profile of like a headdress and a face and a neck. There was no red skin. There was no negative symbolism. It was literally a silhouette that was a very simple logo. And somebody put up a stink about it. And they had to become the Sky Chiefs instead of the Chiefs. They had to be the Sky Chiefs. 
and then they had a bat that looked like it was angry. It looked like a plane, and it had a mad face, and it was one of the most awful cartoon sketches of a logo in the history of mankind that had nothing to do with the Sky Chief's name, but it was there because somebody got offended. And we look back on it, when we were the Syracuse Chiefs, and we have Onond- we live in Onondaga County, which is named after a Native American, and we have a lot of roads and cities and counties named after Native Americans, I have lived in central New York most of my life. I have never seen anybody do anything negatively toward a Native American in our county, in our community, in our towns, in our cities. I have never heard anything. I have never seen any blasphemous stuff. So to me, it's like, are we spending a ton of time complaining about things that don't exist and not focusing on the real problem? You know, that's the short answer is yes, because the real problem to me is seeing homeless people in my city, seeing homeless people on drugs in my city, you know, seeing seeing communities. My dad and I were driving through communities yesterday in central New York. They used to be beautiful. The houses were beautiful. These big, awesome, amazing houses. Now they have wooden boards and they have their windows boarded up and they look like they're about to cave in and they just look absolutely awful. There's mattresses all over the place. And these were, these were houses that were expensive beautiful houses, communities that people wanted to live in, that sought to live in, that it was an honor and a privilege to live in those communities. And now they're run down. So, I mean, I know that I might be saying something crazy to our governments, both locally and nationally, but maybe you should start looking at the quality of life for people and stop looking at the names of teams. And maybe we could get something done that's a little bit bigger. I'm not saying it's not important to respect this and respect that, but I would think that the demise of cities in the United States of America should probably be an area of focus more so than figuring out what Washington should name its football team. Yeah, and you know, focus more on that. Worry about us instead of letting illegal people into this country and giving all this money to other countries in wars that have nothing to do with us. I mean, I try to understand it, Murph, but I haven't. What I can say is that as we are here this morning, and we're going to take a step aside in just a second, and we'll come back with Jets and Matt, Jets and uh, Jaguars, pardon me. And But to get a final note here for the baseball side of things, when you look at these series and you see how the teams have performed so far, I know we talked about the Orioles in the danger zone that they're in. They're in a best of five series, and all the Rangers have to do is win one more. Minnesota's got it tied up and then the Braves and Phillies will play in Atlanta tonight on Monday, October 9th at 6.07 PM Eastern time on TBS. They lead one to nothing. The Phillies do Arizona will be at Los Angeles once again at 9.07 PM Eastern time tonight. And they lead one, nothing over the Dodgers and they have Zach Gallen going up against a rookie pitcher tonight in Los Angeles. What are your thoughts on the series as we stand right now? Well, before I get to that, real quick, yeah. what is this schedule? Why on earth are we having an off day after game one? I don't know. So one of the broadcasters made a comment, and he was like, well, you know the NLDS doesn't play on Sundays. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, like, start 
start one set of series on one day and then start the other set of series on another day. If you right. want to have baseball every day. But you can't have a random off day in the middle of a series. Yeah. The Diamondbacks had to play in the wild card series. How is it that Zach Gallon, who pitched in game one of that series, is going to be ready for game two of this series? It should not work like that. He should not be pitching until they go back to Arizona. I I don't get that. Why does the NLDS in both series have an off day between games two game between game one and two? Yeah. You get two off days in the series, period. Between it's literally the two travel days. Between games two and three and between games four and five. Just like the championship series. Travel day, travel day. Between games one, two and three and between games five and six. That's the way it should be. No off days. Played 162 games playing almost every day. If you made the wild, you're you have an advantage as the division winner and who got the bye yeah. to be able to pitch your two best pitchers and not have to face their best pitchers. Gallon pitched game one of the wild card series on Tuesday. Yeah. Technically, yes, Sunday would be regular rest. This game should have been yet this game should have been actually no Monday. This game should have been on Saturday. Wait. Sunday. When did the series start? The series started on Saturday. Series started on Saturday. He probably could have started Sunday, but I don't know. But realistically, I don't understand the the big gap in time between the wild card series and the division series. I mean last year the wild card series was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then the division series started on Tuesday. That I don't get that. I don't at all. It's stupid. Um, but as for, you know, closing thoughts on the playoffs as a whole so far, I don't think I'm at all surprised by the Rangers. I think the Rangers, after losing the division, came in with something to prove and they've done it. You know, they've, you know, they've won four straight. They got to, they get to go back home to Texas I don't see that series making it back to Baltimore. So I think they're going to win. They're going to win in either three or four games. Um, D-backs looked great against the Dodgers in game one. I don't know who the heck the Dodgers are throwing in game two. It might be Bobby Miller or, or whoever, but I could very easily see yeah. the Diamondbacks do that again. The Dodgers are going Bobby I really Miller. Could, I, could, I could see the Diamondbacks winning that series now, the way they've come out and looked. The bats are unbelievable. But the way they've come out and looked, I could easily see them going out and winning that series. Um, the Phillies apparently own the Braves in the playoffs, um, so we'll see what happens there. I can't if the Phillies go back to the Philly two nothing. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, they're winning at three because the Philly crowd was crazy for the wild card series. It was unreal. So as much as you know. People that know me know I hate the Phillies and I hate the Braves more. So, technically, I'm rooting for the Phillies in this series. But I still don't want the Phillies to go to the World Series again. So, you know, I really hope they beat the Braves because I think the Phillies are the best chance to beat the Braves. But, I mean, we'll see. And and then same with the Phillies. Like, Zach Wheeler's going to get to pitch game two. Yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Why does he get to pitch game two? <laughs> yeah. Why does why do they get an extra day off? Why? I don't get it. 
I don't know. But I don't. I don't get it. It's stupid. I don't know. But I will say, I will say that Baltimore going up here and being the number one seed in the American, in the entire American League, playing up against Texas, playing up against history. Think about this. Everybody's like, oh, Texas, they're the best. Oh, my God, they're the greatest thing ever. They almost didn't make the playoffs in the last week. They went yeah. from first place. They could have missed the playoffs. Right. They went from first place to second place in the AL West to being in the wild card when they were winning the division, and they could have been bumped out completely by Seattle. So Here's, te- their, here's the problem with them, though. They had this big celebration after the, you know, on the second to last day of the season, clinched the playoff spot. They they caused themselves to come out flat and lose the game on, on Sunday. They caused themselves to lose the division. That was their own fault. All they had to do was win. And they made and they won the division. Yeah. All they had to do was win. And because they were hungover, they came out and they lost. Shocker. Well, you know, and you you look at this and and you see where they are right now, you know, and obviously they're focused, but Texas Rangers have had recent history and what they've been able to do. The Houston Astros and the Twins, Twins are another team, chip on their shoulder. Nobody's given them a lot, right? We've talked about how they came from the worst division in baseball, yet they're going up against the Astros and they're playing them close. And now they've tied the series and that series is going to go back to Minnesota after tying it up in Houston, which is huge. Now, Philly... You know what what the Twins feel like, though? I apologize for cutting you off, but you know what the Twins feel like to me, though? What? It feels like... You know know how they say baseball's a marathon, right? Yeah. It feels like everyone else was running the marathon. The Twins got dropped off in their car at mile 20. Yeah. That's basically what their regular season was. They didn't have to try. Now they're at the point where they can actually just play. And they've done that so far. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, basically what you're saying is, you know, they could put it on autopilot for a while if they wanted to. That's exactly what they did. Because of who they're playing, because of the division that they have, and because it's like, hey, you know, why? why put... You just needed to win 82 games and you were winning the division. But now, you know, for the Twins, and the only thing that's against that is if you're if you're on autopilot and you're not going full go – yeah, it can help you, but it can also hurt you because then it's like might take longer to turn the car on. So, True. I mean, the twins are obviously proving that. Well, they turned it up at the end of the yeah, year, though. They're figuring it out. They, right? they came out. They were hot in September. Yeah, and they've been figuring it out. So they're they're one and one. The Phillies have a chance to go up 2-0 in Atlanta and then go home and have an opportunity to end the series. And Arizona has the same opportunity tonight. Arizona, six runs in the first inning. Clayton Kershaw gets pulled in inning number one, and the Diamondbacks end up putting up 11 runs, giving up two. They went through the rotation in the first inning, and Marte was back up to bat with plenty of opportunities left to go. This team, between solo shots and sacrifice shots and all different things that they've been able to do, plus being the second team, mind you folks, the number two team in all of baseball and 30 franchises in stolen bases this season with around 170 at this point. So that's another thing to look at. The Arizona Diamondbacks not getting a lot of love. They get it here from me, fan since 97. What up? And so very excited to watch them play tonight. And let's see what happens. Cautiously optimistic I am as a fan, as a broadcaster, 
I'm excited to see, you know, what they could do in this series. And obviously the Phillies and the Braves, I'll be watching both of these very closely from the comfort of my own home. And I look forward to that. And of course, on Tuesday, we'll be back at it with the ALDS when the Astros travel to the Twins for the first time in this series and the Orioles go down to Texas, where I just was in the Arlington area. And they will go back, they will go down to where Texas Live, that whole community of entertainment is. The Orioles will face off against the Rangers down in Texas. So, with that being said, Murph and I will take a step aside for a fast break. When we come back, it's his Jets, my Jaguars, right after this on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. Hi, this is Amy from Mother's Cupboard, home of the whole frittata. We are open daily, 6 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. For takeout orders, call 315-432-0942. And tune in to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora for our monthly food challenge and try our Wake Up Call signature menu item, available seven days a week. Here at Mother's Cupboard, we are Central New York, and it's our honor to serve you. Ma and Pa's Kettle Corn and Popcorn Factory remind us that every day is worth celebrating. Find them at 201 Old 7th North Street in Liverpool, New York. Open Monday through Saturday in-store and all the time online at maandpazpopcorn.com. Serving our Central New York community and beyond, you can order all throughout the country at maandpazpopcorn.com. And remember to get your tins, which have in-store half-price refills forever. Ma and Pa's Kettle Corn and Popcorn Factory available to you for fundraising and all of your events by calling 315-450-6272. That's 315-450-6272. Ma and Pa's Kettle Corn and Popcorn Factory. How corny are you? This is Jimmer Sikowski, owner-operator of Chick-fil-A Cicero, 7916 Brewerton Road in Cicero, right in front of the Home Depot. I had a deep feeling that God wanted me to do something bigger with my life and to help people, help others. I kept putting Chick-fil-A in my life, and I realized as I was going through the franchise selection process that uh, positively impacting the lives of others is really core to what we do here at Chick-fil-A. First of all, it starts with the food. The food is brought in fresh daily, and we bring in local produce. We prepare to order in the kitchen. We hand bread our chicken. We hand spin our milkshakes. It's it's great food. It doesn't taste like fast food. I, I think the second thing is is the way people feel when they come in a Chick Fil A restaurant. It's different. We we try to treat people with intentional kindness here, which is very different and deeper than good customer service. And so. I think it feels remarkable for most people to come in a Chick-fil-A restaurant. And then lastly, the impact that we try to have in the community is very different. It's a big part of the expectation of every operator of a Chick-fil-A restaurant is that they're actively engaged in their community, they're a leader in the community, and they're, they're making a difference. When they realize that what we're striving to do is to shine a little light in their life, that's a very, very different experience than you will have in any other quick service restaurant. It is that remarkable experience that I think people will emotionally connect with. 
Carvel DeWitt, it's what happy tastes like. Do you know why? Because we make ice cream. Creamy, rich, flavorful ice cream. Not yogurt or iced milk like some of our competitors. Ice cream. Fresh, by hand, daily. For the calorie conscious, we have something new for you. Our new Carvelite. Same great flavor, creaminess, and texture of our regular ice cream with only 35 calories an ounce. So whether you want an ice cream cake, flying saucer, dasher, Carvelanche, hard or soft ice cream, we will satisfy your craving with our fresh, handmade, regular, or new Carvelite ice cream. Carvel DeWitt. It's what happy tastes like. The Wildcat Sports Pub in Camillus, New York, is located on 3680 Milton Avenue in the Home Depot Plaza. It is your family-friendly sports bar and restaurant. Folks, some sports bars aren't family-friendly. Some family-friendly restaurants are not sports bars. The Wildcat Sports Pub in Camillus, New York, is proud to be both. It is that marriage that you've been looking for for years. The Wildcat Sports Pub is your home base for your sports bar and restaurant needs, games for the kids, indoor and outdoor activities, and enough things on the menu to come back every single week and get to try something new. They're open Sundays from noon to 8 p.m., Monday through Wednesday, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., and Thursday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to midnight. For reservations and party information, call 315 315- 487-2222 for the Wildcat family-friendly sports pub and restaurant. GG Cards and Breaks available to you seven days a week right there on 639 Delmar Place in Syracuse, New York, right off of Teal Ave. You can find them Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., make your way out to GG Cards and Breaks for singles as well as graded cards, packs, and boxes. See what you'll get at GG Cards and Breaks. Some awesome pulls have come from there, and they have hockey, soccer, basketball, baseball, football, as well as the new Disney Lorcana game that you can go and try and build your deck there with a bunch of starters. They've had a bunch of their product for Lorcana go out as this has been a very difficult thing to find. So go in there while supplies last. And of course, Pokemon as well. You can find it all at 639 Delmar Place in Syracuse, New York, a place that truly cares about the hobby and truly cares about the people that walk through the door. Back here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. We're inside of DT and Murph. I'm here with my guy, Brendan Murphy, and we were talking about baseball before the break. Now we're going to jump into his Jets, my Jaguars. Murph, I'll let you loose here on this one. Your thoughts on how the team has performed in this last game. What are your What's your take on your New York Jets? Sloppy. Okay. But we'll take it. <laughs> okay. Sloppy, but we'll take it. So, you know, Maurice ran the ball great. He had best game of his career, 170, I think it was 177 yards and a touchdown. Basically, the snap, the, the pitch counts off, so now he's doing his thing and he's the lead back permanently. Yeah. Uh, and as, as he should be. And partly because Dalvin Cook is, for lack of a better term, kind of cooked. Yeah. Um, has not looked good. But Zach Wilson pretty much did what he needed to do to you know, win win the game. Now, were there some sloppy mistakes? Yeah. You know, he, he fumbled the ball a couple of times. 
um, going down on sacks and the interception was a little sloppy, but also the interception, the play call was there. It was just a bad throw. So it was the right decision. It was just a poor throw and poor execution. So I saw that. I'm like, mm, you can't really get on get on too much for that. Yeah. Uh, but the defense played great. They locked him up inside the red zone. Um, I mean, the red the Jets are the best red zone defense in the NFL. But it was definitely sloppy. It definitely could have been, you know, a better football game. But a win is a win, right? You know, last week we talked about moral victories, beating the Chiefs on, the, uh, you know, even though he lost to the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football, Zach Wilson looked great. Did Zach Wilson look like the same player? No, but he still looked fine. He made some really good throws. He made good decisions. Yeah. He didn't really do anything stupid. Like, the interception, you know, if you would have told me he threw an interception, I'd have been like, ah, here we go, back to reality. But looking at that throw, it it wasn't a bad decision. It wasn't a stupid throw. It was just a bad throw. Quarterbacks make bad throws all the time. Yeah. So I looked at that. I'm like, eh, is it his fault? Yeah, but it was a bad throw. It wasn't a it wasn't a stupid decision. He didn't throw it right to a defender, um, you know. But ultimately, I think they played well enough to win, and that's all you got to do. Now you got the Eagles coming up, and then you got the bye. You got to assume they're probably going to lose to the Eagles next week. However, then you go into the bye week. You're two and four, and then the schedule lightens up. Yeah. And you get the you got to play the Giants, and you got to play. Chargers and then some other some other teams in there that are not as good, um, you know. And then there's Miami in there too. But at the same time, you look at the rest of their schedule and you're like, you know what? You know, the Jets can get into the bye two and four. Hell, even if they beat if they somehow beat the Eagles, yeah. and are three and three in the bye with Aaron Rodgers being hurt, I you take that all day. Is it two and four? Even at two and four, I think they still got a shot to make the playoffs. Yeah, that would mean they could really only lose three games the rest of the year, but there'd be a path. Yeah. If Zach Wilson can play like the like the like the Zach Wilson we've seen the last two weeks, I think there's definitely a chance. But definitely, without doubt, I'd, I'd love to see it. But how about your Jags staying out there in London and getting the win over the Bills? Yeah, you know. And I do want to say, I do want to make a note here to go back to your game and for the Jets before I get into the Jags. Good buddy of mine. Fantastic guy. Fantastic human. For every interaction I've ever had with him. Friends for over a decade was the offensive coordinator for Doug Marone in Syracuse. That's how we met. Then he moved on to the Bills. Then he moved on to the Jaguars. And I'll never forget, I was taking a picture with the Jaguar outside, and I was waiting for him, and he opened the door, and he said, Hey, act like you've been here before. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and uh, and walking in and spending some time with him and grabbing some lunch, sitting down. Our fireside chats, our late-night conversations, the text messages when he got the job with the Denver Broncos, the immediate message back and how I knew before the, the, it was even released 
by the Broncos. He's always been good to me. He's always been kind. He's always kept his word. He fights like heck. He works so, so hard. And the fact that he was blamed for a franchise's debacle that has been happening and crumbling since they let Tim Tebow go. For those of you that don't want to hear it, it's the truth. You went to the playoffs with Tim Tebow and you went to the playoffs with Peyton Manning. You won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. Granted, it wasn't just Peyton Manning. It was the defense. And it wasn't it, was it wasn't just Tom hey, Brady. Yeah, yeah. Toward the, but he'll, same, he's, he'll be the first to make right. Same thing with Tom Brady, though. Same thing with Tom Brady. It wasn't Tom Brady the last couple Super Bowls with the Patriots. It wasn't Tom Brady in the Bucks one. Throwing three interceptions, you got to give credit to that defense too. And so that defense made Patrick Mahomes look silly. Yeah, when when people, my God, that was one of the worst games I think I ever saw Patrick Mahomes play. Yeah, but when you disrespect Peyton Manning, I just want to remind people that Peyton Manning and Tom Brady have leaned on their defenses. But I digress. So last year, Nate Hackett becomes the head head coach of the Broncos. And he's questioned on, why didn't you call that timeout? Why didn't you kick that field goal? Why didn't you go for it? Things that coaches are questioned about all the time. Now, Bill Belichick has had his two worst losses of his entire coaching career in the last two weeks. Back-to-back. Worst home loss ever yesterday. Before, I saw on Twitter that, the, that people think the Patriots should fire him. Well, and here, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Bill Belichick going through all of this, and he's still Bill Belichick, right? People go through ups and downs. He doesn't have Tom Brady anymore. Go beyond that. Go to an, or not even beyond that, but go to another situation, right? Go to other teams and other Barry Switzer, right? Jimmy Johnson, he coaches that Super Bowl team. Barry Switzer comes in. They win a Super Bowl, and they're still like, mm, Barry. And obviously, Barry's different than Jimmy Johnson, but – Coaches have ups and downs. Coaches make mistakes. Bill Parcells came into a Cowboys franchise that was in shambles, and he tried to repair it, and he helped them get back to the playoffs, but they didn't look great, and Quincy Carter was their quarterback, and I thought he should have been a wide receiver. So when you look at coaches, the whole point that I'm trying to make here, Nick Saban and and Bill Belichick were on the Cleveland Browns franchise when the team was one of the worst teams in the entire country. And now you look at Bill Belichick and Nick Saban as two of the greatest coaches ever in the history of mankind. Coaches make mistakes. Coaches take time. When a coach is in their first year, Romeo Cornell didn't have to win a game in Cleveland and they wouldn't fire him. 0-14, his job is safe. Jackson. Yeah. So, I mean, you look. One, one game in two years and still wasn't fired? Look at Lovey Smith. Barely, you know. Make the playoffs lose. Make the playoffs lose. Make the playoffs lose. Hey, you know what? We're going to keep them with the Bears. And so... Then they went to the Super Bowl. Or Yeah, I mean, when when you see a coach make mistakes in their first year ever as a head coach, or things don't go their way, or things don't seem to be gelling, number one, it's his first year. Number two, it's his staff's first year. Number three, some of those guys are on the team for the first time that year. You cannot judge someone's begin. It's like it's like putting your money in the stock market on a Monday and taking. It's like putting your money in the stock market on a Monday at noon and taking your money out at three p.m. and saying, "I didn't make enough in the last three hours." That's not what you do. It's not how you treat things. It's not how you treat people. It's not how you treat coaches. 
you got to give people time. Urban Meyer didn't get the time because Urban Meyer was allegedly skating out on some extramarital things. That was totally different, and you let that go. That's but, a different story. But in the world of Nate Hackett, in the world of a first-time head coach in the NFL ever, with all of the coaches in the NFL with terrible records, with all of the coaches that were given four, five, ten years in the NFL, I look at Nate Hackett, and they said, he can't hack it. You got to let him go. You got to let him go game one. You got to let him go game four. You, you know, can't. You know why they let him go? They let him go because Russell Wilson did not play well. But this that is, is how, why they let him go. And this is how I look at it. They had a, a former Pro Bowl quarterback yeah. who they who the team just traded for. They just hired a new offensive-minded head coach who's worked with Aaron Rodgers. And the reason he is out was out so quickly is because Russell Wilson imploded. But this is how I look at it now. Russell Wilson doesn't look great now. He doesn't look good. He doesn't look. Does fan- he look better than last year? Yeah, yeah a little. but here's the thing. He lost some weight. He's a little more mobile. But here's my issue, him, though. He's been no better. Here's my issue. Pete Carroll didn't want to let him go. Then all of a sudden, it felt like overnight. Pete Carroll was like, "You know what? I'm ready to let him go." That tells me that Pete knew something. And what was Russell going through? He had a thumb injury on his throwing hand. Then he goes to the Broncos. Was that thumb healed? Was it healed 100% when he started playing? Can it ever be healed? Does it not feel the same? Does the ball not feel the same? Does his hand go numb at times? I don't know. Only Russell can tell you that. But here's the thing. Pete wasn't going to let him go. And there he, it was going back and forth. Hey, you're under contract for the next couple of years. You want to go? Oh, well, you're still my quarterback. You're my quarterback till you're not my quarterback. Then all of a sudden, he said, you know what? You don't have to be my quarterback. And they trade him to the Denver Broncos. And Russell Wilson has not been himself. This team has not played well. The defense has been awful. The offense has been a little bit better than last year. But they're not putting up substantial, consistent numbers. The team hasn't looked good. And all I want to tell everybody, with Sean Payton coming in here, and I'm not going to attack Sean Payton like he attacked Nate Hackett. The only thing I'm going to say to Sean Payton publicly is, when you call somebody out and you dog somebody and you disrespect somebody and they come into your house and they beat you, don't look at the camera and say, I think we've already talked about what we talked about, about what we talked about when we talked about it back then when we talked about it. No, look into the camera, be a man, and say that you were wrong. Go and shake Nate Hackett's hand, apologize to him in his eyes, and tell him that you were wrong. You were a dick. You were rude. You were disrespectful. You were ignorant. You were naive. You inherited the you-know-what storm that's in Denver right now. They are arguably the worst team in the NFL. Arguably the worst team in the NFL. The only reason why they're not is because Chicago exists and Carolina exists right now. But what the Denver Broncos need to understand is, if you're going to fire Nate Hackett for all the reasons that you allegedly did, then you need to fire Sean Payton for the same reasons. Because this team is a dumpster fire. Nobody can get it corrected, not even the, the great Sean Payton. And I have respected Sean Payton for a very long time. And I'm not going to witch hunt Sean Payton like he witch hunted Nate Hackett. I'm just going to tell him to be a man from a man. When you are wrong, look a guy in his eyes, shake his hand, and have the decency and the balls to say something. And when you get asked the question in the press conference, you need to look into the camera and apologize. Because real men apologize. Real men admit when they're wrong. Real men actually eye-to-eye somebody that they disrespect. Fake men, pansies, and jokes. 
stand behind cameras, stand behind their franchise, and ignore the words that they said before. If you're willing to go out in public and say that Nate Hackett's one of the worst coaches ever in the history of the NFL, he just kicked your butt. Now you should say something about it. Have the balls to do it. That's all I'm going to say, Sean. Have the balls to say something. The New York media had a field day with Sean Payton yesterday. So there was a quote from Sean Payton. I don't remember what game it was. Talking about how he doesn't want to see his players wearing like bucket hats and sunglasses after winning a game or something like that or losing a game. So when Jets pregame live started, I'm watch I'm watching I'm downstairs watching TV yesterday. Yeah. I ended up turning off the Steelers Ravens game to watch the Jets pregame show. They come in. Yeah. And I don't know if any of you have seen it on Twitter, because if you haven't, it's funny. They are wearing all four of them, bucket hat. And black sunglasses, making fun of Sean Payton, and it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. I was cracking up laughing when I saw it because I knew exactly why they did it, and yeah. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is so good!" And I'm like, "If they don't win this game, that's going to be so bad." So you know, it might have been ugly, but you know, they went out, they got the win. I still think there was some very poor clock management at the end of the first half. Um, they could have easily gotten a field goal there, but they didn't, but that's besides the point. They won the game, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I'm I do. just glad they won. And I was, I was happy to, to stick it to Sean Payton because I think now it's funny. I don't like Sean Payton anymore after all the stuff that he said about the Jets. So uh, this, um, my, th- my thing with, with Sean Payton is when you come in and you take over, I have talked to countless coaches for decades. And even if a coach doesn't agree with the coach before them, even if they don't respect the coach before them, when they talk about the team, they will say, you know, hey, this coach did the best that they could. Hey, this coach left me with stuff. When they start being successful, they go, oh, I want to credit the coach before me because he went and got this recruit or he went and made this trade or he went and did this, whatever it may be. I don't typically hear anybody say that. Sean Payton walked in, and it was basically like, hey, to save my own butt, I'm going to tell you that Nate Hackett blew this thing up. It's all his fault. It's terrible. So if anything goes wrong this year, you got to blame Nate. It's not my fault. I mean, it was almost like he set himself up knowing if we fail, blame Nate. And now they're one and four. You know, and now I look at the Denver Broncos, and I'm not going to say now what I said before was if you're going to fire Nate Hackett for the reasons you claim you did, then you have to do the same thing to Sean Payton if you are who you say you are. And and that is that is me saying... I don't think, I don't think they can do that, though, with what they gave up. To no, they, no, they won't. They won't. They can't. They won't because of the name, and they won't... Be, the NFL. They won't because of the name, and they won't because of the clout. But this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying Dan Tatora says fire Sean Payton. I'm saying if you look at... Sean Payton and where the team is heading and you look at where Nate Hackett was at this time and this and that, whatever, that I'm calling out the Broncos essentially by saying you're going to keep Sean Payton, but not Nate Hackett. You didn't give Nate time, but you're going to give Sean time. That's what I'm saying. I would never wish for someone to be fired. I would never wish for someone to lose their job. What I'm going to say about the Sean Payton situation is simply this. You were wrong, Sean. The fans were wrong. The franchise was wrong. And Nate Hackett was never the problem. And I've said it, and I will say it over and over and over again. Nate Hackett 
was never the problem in Denver. Denver's got a lot of problems. Denver's got a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And it's not Nathaniel Hackett. And the fact that he could not only go in there as the OC with Zach Wilson and win that game with that staff and that team when the Jets could go in there, win that game on the road, do it in Denver, the city that allegedly loved Nate for five minutes and then didn't. And maybe some people in Denver still do. And to those that do, you're smart. To those that hate on Nate, well, you guys just change coaches like underwear and you change your mind like underwear, okay? When you love somebody and then, well, he's not my coach anymore, okay, now I hate him. No. If you if you respect someone and you build quality relationships, you love them no matter what. I've known Nate, and like I said, Syracuse, Buffalo, Jacksonville, Green Bay, and Denver, and now the Jets. I've loved him the whole way because I love the human being. He's a good man. He's a good friend. And I'm not defending him because he's my friend. I'm defending him because I know him better than most people do. And I know dang well that Denver was not his fault. And now the world knows that Denver's not his fault. So congratulations, Denver Broncos. You hired a guy who has no respect for his peers. And now you can live with the repercussions of that. All I know is I just saw all the Jets players that were just hugging Nate Nathaniel Hackett. And it's beautiful. He was so excited after that game was over. I felt so happy for him. Yeah. Because I thought that was great. Because, because it's vindication. You could tell that the Jets wanted to win that game for him. Yeah. You could tell. It's vindication, Murph. It's Oh, yeah. It's, it's those players loving – and think about that. If he's a bad guy, if he's a crappy guy, if he's not a good coach, if he's not a good person, why are his players – Wearing, but you know, why are the players on the team? Why are they wearing bucket hats and sunglasses? Why are they? I mean, he's not even, he's not their head coach. He's their offensive coordinator, right? But they're respecting him. They're loving him. They're standing by him. He might as well have been the head coach yesterday because they're showing him on the screen and they're going up and they're yeah. loving him. They're, they it's got his back. They're protecting him, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing. And the, I thought that was awesome. The the Jets. I, heard, I I will say though, I heard Zach Wilson say one thing after the game, or maybe maybe it was he was talking with somebody and the person reported on it that apparently Nathaniel Hackett's the first offensive coordinator that actually trusts Zach Wilson to play his game. Well, and I, is opening up the playbook for him, and that's that's the thing. Like they needed to take the kid gloves off. Yeah, and they did that against the Chiefs, and they did. It looked like they started to do that again here against the Broncos. Yeah. I wish they would have done a little more play action passing, you know, but the kid looked better because they're actually letting him do his thing. Well, when the Jacksonville, it is the reason why they're letting him do that. So, you know, I think obviously Aaron Rodgers last week had a big thing to do with it, but Aaron Rodgers took Zach Wilson under his wing. Nate Hackett's done the same thing. Well, and the thing is gone. Wilson's the quarterback. So they've, they've taken Nate Hackett and, uh, Nate Hackett's taken Zach under his wing and basically told him, dude, we're going to open up the playbook for you because we trust you. Well, Nate Hackett, Do you think? Nate Hackett built Ryan Nassib into a quarterback that made the NFL. Nate Hackett was with Blake Bortles when the team was four points away from going to the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. Nate Hackett, Everybody who's in love with Aaron Rodgers and the talent and all the Jets fans that thought that they were getting this high-quality gem, who worked with them for the last many, many years? Nate Hackett. So Nate Hackett, Nate Hackett is connected 
two success when the Bills were making the playoffs back then before Josh Allen. Nate Hackett was there as the offensive coordinator. So wherever Nate Hackett has gone, Nate Hackett has shown success. The only place where it didn't happen is the place that gave him no time and blamed him for everything, the Denver Broncos. But in Jacksonville, in Jacksonville, success. Jets, success. Bills, success. Syracuse, success. Packers, success. There's something to be said about the consistency of success and that this man has the effect on the players on that team with the New York Jets so much that when that game got won, they went over to him. They celebrated him. They didn't celebrate themselves. They celebrated Nate. When somebody comes over and they show you love and they protect you and gave them the game ball, think about it. That entire team came around Nate Hackett. You don't come around a guy that's not a good person and that isn't somebody who inspires you and is positively connected to you. That team doesn't do anything for Nate Hackett if Nate Hackett isn't Nate Hackett. So, Denver, I want to welcome you to something today. Welcome to the real Nate Hackett that you never got to know. Yep. Now he's on the other yep. team. He just kicked your tail. You got nothing to say about it. And Sean Payton, I guess my best advice to you in the future is don't be ignorant. Don't be naive. Don't personally attack people. Don't be hateful. And maybe take some responsibility for the storm that's there because it wasn't Nate's fault. It never was. And if we're going to go by what you went by, I guess it's all your fault. And it it's nobody else's because that's what you did. So do you want the same to be done to you? Do you want to be up on the chopping block? Do you want people to say the Denver Broncos are crap because Sean Payton is crap? Or do you think that that's not the case? Because in order for you to admit that it's not your fault, you would have to admit that it's not Nate's fault. And only real men admit when they're wrong. And only real women admit when they're wrong. People that don't say they're sorry, I think those people are pretty sorry. So with that being said, let me hit the Jaguars really quick before we get into this Saxon spotlight. Before Before these games happened in London, I had a conversation with the team. I wrote an article down in Jacksonville when they lost to the Texans for the sixth year in a row at home in Jacksonville, which started back on my birthday to add insult to injury. After that game, I wrote the article, Time to Regroup. Simple as that. You could see it on my website. Go to wakeupcalldt.com. And for those of you that are waiting for Elian to come on, we will be airing that momentarily. So for the Jacksonville Jaguars, I wrote Time to Regroup. And then I went into the locker room and I spoke with the guys about regrouping, resetting, refocusing, those conversations that I had with them all about those re-words, regroup, reset, refocus. Let's go to London. Do you think it's the perfect time to go, an opportunity for this team to be in another atmosphere, to be away from everything, to have a change of scenery, to get back to being who you are? And that's exactly what they did. And the opportunity that I had to speak with center Luke Fortner, linebacker Chad Muma, linebacker Foyer Aluakin, uh, offensive lineman Tyler Shatley, wide receiver and returner Jamal Agnew, wide receiver Tim Jones, wide receiver Christian Kirk, and quarterback Trevor Lawrence. You can check all those out on all of our podcasting platforms, including Podbean by searching Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. And you can hear them all talk about going to London with that mindset. Yeah, maybe we can regroup. We can refocus. Trevor said, yeah, it's a good opportunity to do it, but we shouldn't have to need it. Well, they went out there. 
They faced off against Atlanta. They won 23-7. Then they come against the Buffalo Bills. They go up 11-0, give up a touchdown before halftime, have an opportunity to score at least a field goal, lose possession. The Bills down it, and they go into the half. Then the Jaguars go up again, and it's 18-7. Then it's 18-13 after the two-point conversion is missed. Travis Etienne Jr. played his mind out. Trevor Lawrence played his mind out. Christian Kirk, Calvin Ridley, Foye Aluakin, and Darius Williams again. Back-to-back weeks in London, back-to-back interceptions. Had a 61-yard return against Desmond Ritter. Had a takeaway against Josh Allen when Buffalo was trying to surge down the field and make this their game. The Jaguars never trailed in the game. They went 2-0 in London, exactly what I was hoping they did, exactly what they needed to do. And now they can come back against the Indianapolis Colts on my birthday week on October 15th and have an opportunity at 1 o'clock in front of their fans that I hope will show up because if they're showing up in London, you best be showing up in Florida. And now that the team's gone 2-0, and they're above 500. They're 3-2 and on the season. Same record as the Buffalo Bills. And they have more life now. So looking like themselves, the only two notes that I would make for the Jaguars, keep your emotions to yourself. Because there was two moments where they hit a guy after a play and they weren't flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct. So keep your emotions to yourself and close games out. Stop thinking the game is over until it's actually over. Beyond that, I think they did a good job in London and I'm very proud of the team. Without a doubt, I think I, you know, something that definitely benefited them was the fact that they stayed in London. Yeah. The Bills came in, looked like they were sleepwalking. For a team like the Buffalo Bills make the trip across the pond and look that flat coming out of the gate. Yeah. You could tell that it was jet lag. People forget that though. Like, when, if you're going to go over there, it's just like teams going from the East Coast to the West Coast or the West Coast to the East Coast. If yeah. you're going to go over there, the time difference alone messes with you. It's, you know, these guys are probably tired. They were not ready to play football. And it took, I mean, the Bills eventually woke up, but it was too little too late. And the Jags, having stayed there, were well rested. They were ready to go. You know, it wasn't a problem for them. So, you know, now the fact that they're going to go back home and they're going to get themselves well-rested again, I wouldn't be shocked if they have, you know, later practices this week, but or earlier practices this week, I should say, um, to get ready for Sunday. I think they're, you know, that was a good trip for them. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, is listen – Jet lag could have been an excuse for the Jaguars in the first game. It wasn't. In the second game, you can understand they had been there, and that's what I said. You know, there's no point going to London, coming back to Florida and going back to London. That made absolutely no sense. You stay out there. You got a couple weeks. You get prepared. You get right. You treat it like your home. And these are the two things I would say to anybody making an excuse for the Buffalo Bills or the Atlanta Falcons or whoever. Can't make an excuse for Atlanta that you can't make for Jacksonville because they both came over and they both could have had jet lag. That's number one. Number two is when people say, well, Jacksonville stayed there and Buffalo had to come over and they're jet lagged and now and now Jacksonville is comfortable. Mm, you know, you can say that, but you know what I would say? The game was treated like a Buffalo Bills home game and it sounded like a Buffalo Bills home game and it looked like a Buffalo Bills home game. So with all due respect, you might have jet lag, but the Jaguars still felt like they were playing a road game in London. So 
there was nothing easy for Jacksonville, nothing given to Jacksonville, no excuses in any way, shape, or form, in my opinion, for the Jaguars because they could have said jet lag week one over in London, and in the next week over in London, they could have said, hey, we're not jet lagged, but we're playing an away game, and it looks like the same city that was for us is now against us. So, you know, I would I would venture to say that the Jaguars coming off of this have to give credit to the Jaguars. It wasn't that Buffalo did this. It wasn't that Atlanta did that. The Jacksonville Jaguars played the type of brand of football that they can be. Their offense can continue to get better. Their defense has been one of the best in the nation. And I would venture to say, and I said it last week and I'll say it again, I think the Jets and the Jaguars arguably have the, with the San Francisco 49ers, those are probably your three best defenses in the country as of right now. Yeah. So, you know, looking at what they do in defensive takeaways, opportunities, and defensive touchdowns, it's hard to argue that San Francisco, the New York, the San Francisco 49ers, New York Jets, and Jacksonville Jaguars don't have the best defenses in the nation. To think that the 49ers are leaps and bounds above the Jets and the Jaguars is just ignorance. Because when you look at quality of play and the best offense sometimes being a really strong defense, I don't know who's done that better than the Jaguars and the Jets in these first few weeks. So, you know, and then Real last quick before we go, yeah, go ahead. Are the Niners the best team in the NFL? I think it's difficult because I think because they kicked the crap. I know, out of the I know they did. And and what did I say going into that game? I said it all comes down to what Dak you get. And so, not that it's all his fault, but. Dak is inconsistent and this team is inconsistent and they seem to go as he goes. And so, you know, now you don't have digs because he got injured a couple weeks ago. So that's another thing to look at. But ultimately I think what San Francisco showed in this Cowboys game, because they have beaten the Cowboys in back-to-back playoffs and they just beat them again here in the regular season. The thing that, that I've realized between the 49ers and the Cowboys is in the NFC, there are levels just like there's levels in the AFC. And in the NFC, what was proven last night is that the Niners are on the top level and the Cowboys are not on that top level with them. So the Cowboys might be on level two, but they're not on level one. Are they the best team in the NFL? Their game against the the Philadelphia Eagles, to me, that's going to show me where things are at. Do I think the Niners can beat... Okay, do I think the Niners can beat Philly, Kansas City, those are the questions I'm asking myself. In order for me to consider the San Francisco 49ers the best team in the NFL, those are probably the two teams that I'd be looking at saying, can they beat these teams head up? And what I would say to you right now is I think Philly would be a good game and I could see them beating Philly. And as good as the defense is in San Fran, it's really hard to bet against Pat Mahomes. So I think San Francisco to me, is definitely in the top two, top three teams in the country. The question that I asked myself last night is, are they better than the Philadelphia Eagles? And and that's a question that I think only these teams can answer, you know, going up against each other. But as of right now, San Fran, to me, is one of the top three teams in the nation. I want to get your thoughts in a second. I do want to just put this up here really quick. The San Francisco 49ers schedule, when we talk about are they the best of the best, they will face for the rest of the year. They will get the Eagles. Uh, they will have them on the road on December 3rd 
when Murph and I are in the same place together. So uh, we will have be. Have we even announced? Have we even announced that yet? We haven't. Oh. Maybe well, we'll. Maybe we'll. First, folks. Yes. So we're not going to officially officially announce it, but low key officially, we may be in the same place at the beginning of December. So. May or may not be. Yes. So looking at the rest of the schedule for them, they're at the Browns, at the Vikings. The Vikings depends on who shows up, but at the Browns, at the Vikings, the Bengals at home. Then they're at the Jaguars. I get to see San Francisco come into town. Two of the best defenses going up against each other. That would be a really good game. But, yeah, I mean, Philly will face them in Philadelphia. The Eagles will bring in the San Francisco 49ers on December 3rd, and and they're not going to uh, face the Chiefs in the regular season here. So I think that that question might be answered on December 3rd. But if you're asking me right now, I think San Francisco – is arguably the best team in the country to some people. I have them in the top two or top three. I'm not going to anoint them number one just yet. What are your thoughts? What about what about Brock Purdy for MVP? He's still not lost a regular season game, and the only game in his NFL career that he has lost yeah. was a game where he got hurt. My words. I don't really count that. Yeah. No, my words with Brock Purdy, I go back to the draft. When he was drafted Mr. Irrelevant, I said he's not. And I stick with that. I said, I cannot believe this guy is not has not been drafted till the end of the draft. I don't consider him Mr. Irrelevant. And I've been believing in he's Brock. He's probably used it as fuel. Oh, yeah. And I, and I said about Brock Purdy going into this season, at the end of last season, I said before any of this happened, any of the moves happened, any Jimmy Garoppolo, Trey Lance, any of that. I said, Brock Purdy is your starter. Jimmy Garoppolo, if he stays, is your backup. Trey Lance is probably the odd man out. Those were my words months and months and months and months ago. And so to see him as the outright starter, am I surprised? No. Am I surprised he's winning? No. Because there's this beautiful thing about when you believe in yourself more than you believe in what other people say about you, what you can do is endless. And I think Brock Purdy is a true example of when you believe in yourself more than other people not believing in you and you only care about your voice and not theirs, the possibilities are endless. And San Francisco is one of the best teams in the nation. And it makes you wonder during COVID, if they had stayed healthy, how good could they have been? Because they were the most injured and COVID laden team in the nation that year. And the last two years, we've seen them play as well as they have. So, Hey, San Francisco got something going. If you would have told us three years ago, that they would have missed big time on Trey Lance, where do you think they would be? You would think they would be one of the worst teams in the league. Oh, yeah. But they struck out on Trey Lance, cut bait, and somehow still have their quarterback in the future. Yeah. That they drafted. Yeah. Well, it goes That's to sh- – That is a well-run organization right there. Brock Purdy? Yes, you missed, under, you missed on the top three pick. You gave up a ton to go get him. You have three first-round picks to go up and get him. Yeah. And you struck out. But you're still competing. And you still almost went to the Super Bowl last year. Well, look at it. That's off to them. Look at it like this, Murph. Brock Purdy, seventh-round pick. Tom Brady, sixth-round pick. Sometimes what you get at the end is better than what you had in the beginning. So, with that being – Prescott was a fourth-round pick. Yeah. Warner was undrafted. You never know. You never know. So with that being said, 
Kirk that Cousins was a third round pick too. Yeah, and Kirk Cousins still doesn't get the respect that he deserves. So with that being stated here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora for DT and Murphy, for Murph and myself, Dan Tortora, Murph, as always, thank you. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Of course. It's great to be back. And real quick, because I forgot to say it last week, Zach Johnson, terrible job as the Ryder Cup captain. Never again. (laughs) Never again. Okay. That coming from Murph. We'll talk with you soon. Sounds good, sir. Take care. Here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, we appreciate your patience here as uh, we went into the baseball and football world. We're now going to jump into the equestrian world in my conversation coming up with Elian van der Marva of Johannesburg, South Africa, who is on two of the equestrian teams at Alfred University, the dressage team, and she's been a dressage rider for a, the majority of her career and also a member of the Western team. She's coming up right after this where Sports Meets Life on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. In these unique times, there are those in our community that give us a sense of normalcy and positivity. Pizza Man on 50 Oswego Street in Baldwinsville has been here for you for over 35 years and is here now. Call 315 315- 638-1234 or order online at pizzamanbville.com to bring those familiar tastes into your home. And remember to come see our monthly on-site broadcasts centered around the community and our Baldwinsville bees. Pizza Man in Baldwinsville. Any way you slice it, they are always here for you. I'm George Townsend of Honda City with some good advice from buying a new car. The true cost of owning a new car is determined by the appraised value when you trade it. No vehicle appraises higher than a Honda. That's what for low APRs and deep discounts. You also want low maintenance costs and great fuel economy. That's why my advice to you is to buy a new Honda. Looking pre-owned, visit our Honda Certified Used Car Center. Honda City, 7140 Henry Clay Boulevard, Liverpool, or HondaCity-CNY.com. to glorify God by being faithful stewards of all that's entrusted to us and to positively influence all those who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And what became increasingly clear from our success at Cicero is that people love Chick-fil-A. And also, I think we recognize that, you know, we had a great opportunity to grow the brand and grow our platform. I felt incredibly grateful when I was selected to be a Chick-fil-A operator. I think what it's meant for me, what I've come to realize on a very deep level is that this is a calling for me. It's not a career. It's not a job. The Lord called me to be a Chick-fil-A operator and to use these restaurants to glorify him and to positively influence other people. I'm blessed. I'm very blessed. Head to Chick-fil-A Clay on 3974 State Route 31 in Liverpool, New York. special Saxon Spotlight as we are making history with the first ever 
in over 19 years of broadcasting. I've never had the blessing and privilege of working with any equestrian teams. And now through my exclusive multimedia marketing partnership with Alfred University and the Saxons, they have three different equestrian teams. And I now have the honor of making history here on the show by having a spotlight on equestrian. And I'm here with Elian van der Marva of Johannesburg, South Africa. And we are here to talk about dressage and Western in the world of equestrian. And it is my true honor to have Elian here. Elian, how are you? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here. And so, Elian, you, you come from Johannesburg, South Africa. Bring me into life there, because if I've heard anything about the continent of Africa, it's that what we see on the news is typically not what life is actually like. How would you describe South Africa? I think a lot of people here think that South Africa does not have, like, civilization. Like, they think we're still living in the wild and... Like, a lot of people, first thing they'll ask me is, does the lion walk past your gate in the morning or, like, in your driveway? And that's not the case. Um, the, the animals are all in, like, the Kruger National Parks and places like that. So it's um, still similar, but also very different in the way we live because we do have all the amazing animals, but it's not the same as where deer would walk up to your house here in the U.S like the animals don't walk up to your house in South Africa like that. And so you said that that's, that's the most common misconception that people think of Africa and they just think it's a giant like open field of animals everywhere. So if that's the misconception, how would you describe home to what it truly is? I mean, um, I think it's very similar. Like, I think the cities are very different in the like infrastructure. But um, it's still like um, it would it would be similar and like everyone has somewhere to live and you still drive to places. Um, you don't have the same amount of like public public transport like you would in New York City or something like that. Right. Um, you would mostly drive with your own vehicle um, because of the distances between places, but. Otherwise, I think the way in which we live is pretty similar. Do you miss being home? Yes, I do. <laughs> so, so how did you find out about Alfred University? How did this all come about that you ended up here? Um, we had a group come to our school, um, our high school, when I was in my final year. Um, and they, they were called the I'm 360 team. And they basically try and um, work or they basically recruit people to schools in the U.S., which are a bit smaller, but um, where they think that you would fit best. So we ended up, they give, gave us like five options each, and they basically help you to find the school that they think you would do the best and um, basically excel at in the best way. So that's how I came to Alfred and found the equestrian team and all of that is because they told me they thought that this would be the best school for me. So you go through that process, like you said, like you have somebody looking to try and find that right fit for you. Are you happy that you had that bridge of, of someone looking out 
for you to say of where you want to go and what you want to do. We're going to help you kind of almost like, you know, an, an agency of sorts, you know, help you find your, your right fit in your place. Did, did you feel like that took maybe some of the pressure off and, and it was special for you to have that opportunity that somebody was helping? Yes, I think it really helped in the sense to take some, give you some stress relief because they also already communicate with the schools before you even start communicating with them, talking to the school saying, would this person be accepted? Um, what do they need? And they also took me through my whole visa process and stuff like that where they give you all the information you need um, because there's multiple different websites that you have to go to and do specific paperwork and all of that sort of stuff. And they also help you get the right information from the university to do all your paperwork. So I think that was really, really helpful because also they just had to go look into Google and say, okay, which universities are in the US? There's only a certain number that comes up and Alfred or any of the others that some of my friends went to, definitely the schools weren't one of the first ones on the list to come up. And I probably would have never found Alfred if it wasn't for them. And so when you have that kind of discovery process for what you specifically wanted, what did you tell this, you know, the, the, the source that, you know, you were able to go through for this information? What did you tell them as far as what you were looking for? So I basically told them that I was a dressage rider um, and that's really something that was a big thing for me. And then you usually give them around about a price limit that you're looking at. And then they also look at what your goals are. So what do you want to study and what do you want to accomplish? And um, then when they reach out to the university, they find out which one basically fits you the best. And so, like you said, you would have never found Alfred if not for, you know, having this bridge in between. Do you reflect back on that hindsight 2020? And are you happy that of all the places that could have been found for you, that Alfred was that connection that was made for dressage for you to continue your love for the equestrian world? Or are you happy hindsight 2020 that you ended up at Alfred? Yes, I think I really am because I've had experiences here that I believe I would not have had anywhere else. And I've made some really, really great relationships with people. And I've been fortunate enough to go to nationals um, in the last school year. And I placed an eighth place ranking nationally for Western. And I don't think I would have at a different who even considered doing Western is it wasn't for our coaching staff here that motivated me to do more than one riding style. And, you know, and here in this very special Saxon spotlight in our exclusive multimedia marketing partnership with Alfred University on Wake Up Call and through Dan Tortora Broadcast Media here with Elian this morning. Uh, when, when you, like you said, a branch out from dressage into Western. And if it wasn't for Alfred, you might have never done anything like this. To people that don't know, there's there's three different styles of riding that are at Alfred University. And those three different styles are dressage, hunt seat, and Western. You, you are a part of dressage as well as the Western style. How would you describe each of these styles uniquely? 
to someone who has never been involved in the equestrian world? Well, if we start with Western, you have to basically perform patterns that are similar to trail riding, reining. So it would be more like um, riding like a cowboy would have when they were like out in a field. And it's um, very specific to um, everything is specific to what you wear. So for dressage, you would wear like um, you would use an English saddle, whereas Western, you would use a Western saddle. And then um, with English riding, you'll wear breeches with a coat and a helmet. And in Western, you would wear a hat with a long sleeve shirt and um, jeans with chats on or something like that. And then dressage is um, very specific to the movements that you have to do. And you throughout your whole test, you ride a pattern. And you know your pattern, and you can practice your pattern from um, earlier on. And then with the um, IDA that we do, you get five minutes to warm up a horse, and then you go into the arena and you ride it. Whereas with the Western, you get on the horse and you go straight into the arena. But all of all of it is um, luck of the draw. So you basically have to know how to ride every single horse and you don't get the opportunity to ride the horses beforehand so you need to as a rider be able to ride anything basically anything you draw and you know so describing the western style as well as dressage what about the hunt seat i know that that's not one that you do but what is what's unique about hunt seat equestrian so the hunt seat Similar to Western, you do flat classes, which would be you go around and you ride and um, they judge you on the style you ride and how you sit on the horse. And then um, the hunt seat also has a different class where you go around and you jump over obstacles. Um, similar like they would like based on like tradition of fox hunting and stuff like that. So between, I know you, you spoke on spending so many years in dressage, but now having Western as part of what you've done and part of your world as a competitor, are they neck and neck as far as your favorite? Is dressage still your favorite? Where does Western fall into all this for you now? I think I really, um, because I've been riding dressage my whole life, um, the Western is very different for me, and I really, really enjoy learning the new riding style. So at the moment, I would say I almost enjoy Western more because it's so much more challenging, and I still need to read up so much more about it. Whereas with dressage, I'm a bit more comfortable already in it, and even though there's still so much to learn from it, um, I just really enjoy the challenge of learning something so different and so new. But you still get the opportunity to connect dots with the different riding styles and use the one to help you improve on the other. And you said that you can use one to help the other, Elian. How how does Western help dressage? How does dressage help Western? So Western, you sit in a more um, specific, um, especially because we do horsemanship. So you have to be in an almost perfect position with your leg and it just really helps strengthen your legs to be really nice and long. And in dressage, you still want that long leg, but um, not as much. But with learning to ride with the longer leg, it 
ride a horse with your knee a bit more bent. So to keep your balance, it, it just made it a lot harder when I was first riding Western. And in that way, I also, with Western, I learned different movements of how to use my hand and use the rein and ways to give the horse and um, uh, just like, it's, it's a different riding style, but with that, you can still learn techniques to transfer it over into the other riding style when the horse is different or sometimes you end up actually riding a western horse for a dressage show because that's sometimes just what in what would be in your draw. So sometimes then it's also really helpful if you end up riding a western horse for a dressage show that you know how to ride it. Yeah, you know, and, and like you said, you know, knowing how to ride the horses, you had made mention of the fact that when you're in these competitions, you don't have time with the horse before. So you're jumping on a horse that's a total stranger to you, you to them. How do you bridge that gap? Because it's not just, I mean, it's not like picking up a basketball and going, well, I've never played basketball with this basketball, but I'm going to pick it up and see how it feels. I mean, you're on a living, breathing animal, and there's a connection that I think, you know, people will say, be it a horse or a dog or a cat or whatever animal, there's a connection that you make where you feel like they feel safe, you feel safe. When you're in a situation where it is stranger to stranger, how do you bridge that gap of calming the animal and feeling safe, safe with one another because it is such a unique sport in that world? So what we do is before we um, actually do the draw, they warm the horses up in front of us. So you make very detailed notes of how the riders are riding the horses and what their reactions are to what certain stuff, like what the riders are doing. And then by that way, you can learn a lot about the horse. And then they give you a very short description on, let's say, if the horse doesn't like it, if you like, kick him too hard or something like that, that would be his response. So they do give you a small description, but then the biggest thing is just getting on the horse and getting a feel and staying very, very calm, no matter what happens, already calms the horse. And a lot of horses don't have the same ability. And when you first do your rail work, um, they say, um, so if you'd have a couple minutes where the judges judge you on the rail and you just go around on the rail of the arena and that's when you figure out how to ride your horse and what they like what they dislike how much leg you should be using because it's really easy to give in because you're not going to a certain place and you have the wall there um that's guiding the horse already so after that when you line up you end up doing a pattern and when you do this pattern that's when you need to already know, okay, this is how much this horse can give me. And when he gives that to you, you need to know when the point is to not ask for more and what this horse's ability is, because that's the only way that you can keep the horse happy. And if you keep the horse happy, then you're going to have a much happier, like nicer pattern. And it's just going to go a lot better because the horse will be happy. And if you give in um, to when they're being good, then they just go really well because when they, um, when you give the rain, when they're doing what you're asking, then you're telling them they're being good and then they don't start worrying. 
do you feel like there's a way to communicate with your horse to kind of go a little bit deeper into that? You've been doing this for 14 years. So as a kid to now, do you feel like there's almost a language that can be spoken through, I know you kind of brought up body language and different things that you do. Do you feel like there's a way to communicate with a horse that, that you found that works when you're dealing with different horses? I find that talking to a horse really works for me because if you are getting nervous and you start talking, it actually calms you down too. But when the horses hear your voice being in a calm manner, then they also tend to calm down. I also like to tickle a horse on their neck because then they also, it just distracts them a bit from whatever's making them nervous. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's just mostly talking. But in the dressage, it's actually really difficult because you lose points if you talk to the horse. You're actually not allowed to talk to the horse. So the difficulty level in keeping the horse relaxed is so much more in dressage. And I really, that's one of the bigger things that I do like because you have to learn to ride the horse with a lot more precision and be a lot more giving when you're riding them with giving the rein and using less life but more like. And um, I just think that that's something that is also a bit more difficult to that side. So in dressage, like you said, where you can't, talk to the horse, how have you found your own way to communicate where you feel like you keep the horse calm and the horse understands you, you understand the horse? What have you done over the years in dressage to help you communicate without words? So something that I really like to do is when I ride the horse and um, your corners, when you're riding through a corner, so your four corners, because you're riding in a um, rectangular arena, 20 by 60 meters arena. So when you go through the corner, that part is not judged. So if you, um, what I like to do is use my outside hand or the hand that's not close, the hand that's facing away from the judge behind the horse's neck. Um, so if I'm close to the judge, I would use the inside hand. If I'm to the other side of the arena, I would use my outside hand. And I would just lightly scratch the horse on the neck just to tell them they're being good. Um, and just to, um, to, by scratching them on the neck, it's usually one of the ways you tell them you're being good or if you pat them on their neck. But scratching them is um, a lot more subtle and it's not as obvious. Yeah. Um, so it, it just really helps because they tend to almost drop their neck and relax their neck when you do it. Um, and it just takes a bit of pressure off. And because you're not getting judged in those four corners of the arena, it really helps because it gives you the opportunity to do it. Um, but you have to be very subtle about it because technically you're not supposed to be doing it during a task. So like you said, finding little ways to, to communicate have you ever had a moment where you felt like you the communication was off or a scary moment where you felt like the, the horse wasn't on the same page as you? Have you ever gone through that before? Yeah, I think I think you go through it almost every single ride because you're riding a different horse every single time when you ride. And um, the thing is, 
at school they have we have over 40 i think it's almost 70 horses and you ride a different horse every day but that's how you learn how to figure out what a horse should be doing and then they teach you certain maneuvers that you can do in the ring um that would set the horse up in a certain way to calm them down calm you down and just so you don't make mistakes, but you maybe won't get extra points for it, but at least you won't be losing points because the horse is staying calm, you're staying calm, and it just brings everything together. You know, and, and for you when, you, when you've had the opportunity to kind of grow and learn through all of this, Elian, why do you love it? Why is it a passion of yours? Because I feel like there's a difference, and I tell people this all the time, in anything in life, you either love it or you think you love it. If you love it, then when something goes wrong, you don't give up. You don't even have that thought on your mind. You just keep going. If you think you love it, then you kind of just say, you know what? This is too hard. I'm not doing it. I'm not pushing myself. Why do you love the equestrian world? Why is horse riding for you such a passion and such a big part of your life? Um, I really, so I have my own horse and, um, that's basically the one thing that got me into riding was having the, the relationship with the animals because they're such amazing creatures and they're, they're just really, um, they fulfill you in a lot of ways. And I think just learning how to work with animals, they teach you so much patience and it's just it's really amazing the um response you get when you're doing something right once you get something the reward you get out of it is so much better if you're struggling with something and you just keep struggling but you try and you try and you try eventually like if you're like riding a certain horse and you're really struggling like you're not getting along with the horse and it's really just an awful ride but it's like the horse's fault they're just you're trying to figure them out they're trying to figure you out so you need to build a relationship but eventually you learn the